Thank you for joining us today. Whether you are part of the Lighthouse family, be it on-site with us weekly or tuning in online, we'd love to connect with you via our social media at Lighthouse Ely. It's on all our social media platforms. I hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Amen. Wow, victory in King Jesus. How about we can be the overcomers, the head, not the tail, above only and not beneath. I tell you, I've missed preaching. I've been away for a couple of weeks, haven't I? And I've missed it. And uh, I've got all these wonderful people saying, hey, I can preach, I can preach. And I'm like, yeah, I know you can, but do you know what I mean? This is my home. This is where I am. And uh, I'm just so glad to be uh, with you today and bringing the Word of God. God spoke this Word to me uh, a couple of weeks ago um, while I was just resting up with my foot up um, after a little break of my leg. And uh, God spoke this and said, we, we need to know the authority that we have as believers. We need to know what it means that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We need to know what it means for the kingdom of God to come here on earth, for God to rule and to reign, and for us to be part of that. Uh, so I'm talking about that uh, probably this week, probably next week, because it's such a huge subject to talk about the kingly authority that, that Christ has and how we can be part of that. And what does the kingdom mean? What does it mean to be part of God's kingdom? This is one of the key messages of Jesus. Kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is at hand. You know, how, what does that mean? It's that close you can touch it. And it's here. And as a prophet, he foretold that the king would return or return of the king. And uh, we can see that Jesus is coming back. We know that. We know that for sure that Jesus is coming back. And in one sense, the kingdom of God is here. In another sense, we're still waiting for that finalization of God's kingdom to be fully flourished and uh, present with us. And we're, we're eager and waiting for that to come. But let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because your name is worthy to be praised. We exalt you above all. And we say, Lord Jesus, take your rightful place in our lives. We pray that your kingdom come. We pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for your sustenance, your provision, that daily bread for us. We thank you that you deliver us from temptation and from evil. We thank you that you are with us every moment of every day, Lord, and we choose to be part of your kingdom and to be the ones to extend your kingdom further worldwide. Lord, to you be the honor, the glory, and the power, the might, and the majesty forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. 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 So what did Jesus mean when he spoke about the kingdom? Um, you know, in, in a Jewish setting, in an Israeli setting, you know, that's on the news a lot at the moment, um, what's happening over there in Israel. But they were expecting a king like David to come and deal with the Roman oppression that they'd been through. And they'd been through many uh, hundreds of years of oppression since uh, David ruled and since Solomon ruled. And, uh, you know, they, re they were in exile. They rebuilt the temple and it was the second temple that Jesus was coming. And, and it was about that time. It wasn't David, uh, Solomon's temple, but it was the second temple. So he comes along and this wild preacher man starts talking about the kingdom of God. And uh, maybe it's a, a Zionist kind of thing or, um, you know, maybe they interpreted that he would be this king that came with the sword. But of course, his kingdom was not of this world. If it was, he told Pilate that uh, all my 
people would fight for me. But a kingdom is not of this world. So what does Jesus mean when he, he talked about kingdom? I want to go into that just a little bit. What does it mean then to have the authority of the king? What does it mean to be the king's subject? What does it mean to carry that badge of authority? You know how uh, police, they're given a commission. Um, was from the queen, now it's from the king. They are that commissioned officer that they represent, that they stand on behalf. You know, when the policeman or policewoman stands, puts his hand up for the traffic to stop, they don't stop because of that individual. They stop because of that authority that that individual represents. And we understand those things, don't we? That they carry that authority, and then we need to do what we're told because it's not that person, it's the authority that comes with them. It's the authority of the crown that comes along. Another question is, when will the kingdom of God finally uh, be realized. The kingdom of God is, is such a vital message for Jesus. I think Matthew records the word kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven over 50 times. That's how important this idea of the kingdom is essential to know what Jesus is teaching about. And Jesus also continues preaching what John the Baptist was preaching, which was repent for the kingdom of God is near. John the Baptist came preaching repentance and following that, the baptism. And Jesus followed that along as that prophet that says the kingdom of God is near. It's literally at hand. But simply put, a kingdom is a place where a king rules. I know that seems really basic, simple there. But that's what a kingdom is. A kingdom is a space and, and simply put, this is God's space where God rules. And Jesus came, and this is the essential message he had, was repentance for the kingdom of God is here. So repentance speaks of new beginnings. Because we are turning from our old kingdom that we were part of, which is the kingdom of darkness. And we're being transformed into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of his dear son, or the kingdom of light. And Jesus came to preach repentance because God was doing something new and the earth was a place where God is meant to rule. Another way of putting it is the rule of God has arrived. God is now in charge. And that is a different way of looking at the essentials of what Jesus came to teach and preach. So when you see Jesus healing people, when you see him delivering people from the power of Satan, when you see Jesus touching people and open the eyes of the blind and turning people's lives around, it's all to be part of the kingdom. And that repentance is that beginning or a new beginning, if you like. It's out with the old and in with the new. And Genesis, that's the word Genesis, actually means in the beginning. And when John writes his gospel, he, he, he begins with, in the beginning. And he says there's a genesis happening here. And, and it's on purpose that he's linking Jesus into a new beginning. Because he's referencing the old beginning. Jesus was the word of God. He was there in the beginning. Nothing was made that, was made that wasn't made by him and through him. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's the word of God. And repentance means speaking words. But it also means the action that corresponds to those words. Repent and believe, I think, is actually one motion. 
It's turning from what you used to be into who you are now. Repent and believe. I think that's the same, similar to like listen and obey. They're kind of linked. If you're not listening, you're not obeying. If you're not repenting, you're not believing. So it's one motion that I think Jesus is, is preaching here. And it's talking about this new beginning, this Genesis. And he's linking to this, to the resurrection. So it begins with, in the beginning was the Word. And we know from creation that God spoke the Word into the world that was in chaos, into the wor world that was covered in water. And water represents chaos. And then God is bringing order into chaos by the words that he speaks. And that word is, is Christ himself. And as we speak God's word or the word of God, we are speaking, if you like, into existence a new beginning. And we're entering, we're part of this new beginning. Why? Because we're repenting. And we're repenting and believing it. And it's words followed by action. And I think that's really key when it comes to how do we enter into the kingdom of God is through our words and, and follows our words is our action. Before Christ, there was nothing. The world was void and in chaos without form, but the Spirit of God was hovering. That's really interesting that the Spirit of God is hovering over this emptiness and this void, you know, which is how we were before we met Christ, before the Word of Christ came into us and dwelt in us richly. I love that when Paul says that. Before Christ, there was nothing. But then the Word of God comes to us, and the Word of God makes us alive in Him. And as we speak those words, that something miraculous happens in us because we are repenting and believing and we're entering into the kingdom of God, into the place where we know he rules and we begin to rule with him. And as we repent, we speak these words and actions follow. We leave behind the chaos and embrace God's order, God's way of doing things, God's new life as that new beginning. Genesis is all about that creation of God's beautiful world. And John's telling this story, the gospel from beginning to end is something new is happening. There's a revolution. There's a, there's a new thing has begun. And we can now enter into it. And we can, Jesus is telling us, it's not that we're leaving behind this world to go to another world. I don't think that's what Jesus' message is about. I think Jesus' message is about the kingdom of God. God's space wants to invade earth. And we're going to be the ones to bring and usher that kingdom in. It's not about us being Christians and then looking to escape this world into uh, you know, another place. It's about us being part of God's kingdom, God's space, where God rules and God reigns and we like kings and priests, reign with him as it was meant to in the beginning. Jesus is rescuing creation and enabling people to be a new creation. Paul picks this up. And it's the same creation metaphor is that you're, you're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Why? Because your life was crucified with him. And now the new life you live is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Genesis, this is the beginning. Genesis, actually the word means in the beginning. That's the first words of the Bible and that's where the title comes from. But God said this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. 
God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals earth, on the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All humans made in God's image or likeness. This word image kind of means a representation of. It's the same word that the ancient world would use to, for an idol. An idol of a false god was something that they maybe made out of clay, out of, out of wood. And, and some of them in the ancient stories, they believe that uh, the, the, the life of God was breathed into these idols. And it was called opening the mouth of the idol. Um, I could go into a little history lesson for you here. But some of these stories, they're saying this idol then became God to them. Right? So... It's a similar thing going on, but it, with real key differences that these idols, image bearers, are not God. They're representing God. There's a big, big difference in that one. Um, but these clay beings that God makes and then breathes his life into them that they become this living being. And they're commissioned. They're commissioned to rule and have dominion. Interestingly, the, the name um, image of God was used for kings in the ancient world. You know, that they had a divine right to rule because they were the image of God. And certainly you get this in Egyptian uh, mythology and in Mesopotamia as well. You get these ideas that uh, they got Marduk and um, Ra and the sun god and all these kind of things. They were, they were considered gods among the heathen nations. I'm digressing here. But Genesis is different because what, he, what he's saying here is that all humans are made in the image of God. That's the difference. It's not just... The, the select few, but it's, the, it's humanity is made to represent God. In Psalm 8, um, we read this, verse 5 and 6. It says, Yet you made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. And you have given them dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under their feet. The meaning of the image of God means that we are representing God in ruling. And the way to rule is in partnership with God. We are meant to rule with God, not in place of God. We're not the ones then to decide what we think is right and wrong. No, we are the image bearers of God to represent God on earth. And the Garden of Eden, if you like, is that space where heaven inv invades earth. It's that connection point. It's like the temple. The, the Garden of Eden has this temple imagery where the ancient temples that you'd place the idol in, in this you've got a garden which is placing God's image bearers in to represent him. But of course we know something went wrong. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal. You remember they had authority over the wild animals, just the two chapters before. And he said to the woman, did God say, 
you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. I think she's got a little bit confused there because God never said that bit. But God knows that um, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a real deception here because they're already like God. Do you know what I mean? He's promising something that they already have. But this is outside of God's rule. They're given one rule. I know I have that in my house. I've only had one rule. Uh, but God only had one rule and they broke it. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Uh, it was a delight to the eyes and it desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. He was right there along beside her. That's another story for another day. But the fruit was good for food. You know, it's so tempting for their flesh. It was something that... Uh, Good for food. It was something that they were told not to touch, but, you know, that forbidden fruit that people can't resist. As soon as you tell someone no, it's like, tell someone no, the, the only thing they want to do is that. It was a delight to their eyes. You know, it, would, it filled them with lust, and they wanted to be wise, you know, so we've got the pride that's coming in there. These three temptations that they succumb to, meant that they disobeyed God and their relationship was broken. They were removed from the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. And through, uh, Paul says, through one man's disobedience, many were made unrighteous. For one man's obedience, which is Christ, many were made right with God. And John, when he writes his letter in, in 1 John 2, he talks about these temptations which are common to all humans. And the first humans fell to this. And it's almost like the enemy or the, the serpent has no new tricks. The temptations that faced Adam and Eve were the same temptations that faced Christ. And he says this in John, 1 John 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world, for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the lust or desire of the eyes, and the pride of riches comes not from the Father, but from the world, and the world and its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. You see the parallel there with the three temptations that he's talking about those who do the will of God live forever. And what is it? The one thing that they weren't allowed to do was eat of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, temptations we see are all too common. And it's not that we get tempted, but it's that we pass the test. And Adam and Eve, they lost that battle with temptation and di proved dire consequences to the whole of the human race. Paul writes this in Romans 5, verse 17. One man sinned, so death ruled all people because of one man. So who is now ruling because of this? It's not the humans that are ruling. It's death that is ruling. But now these people who accept God's full grace and the great gift of being made right with him will surely have true life. There's that word life again. 
and rule through one man, Jesus Christ. You see, Paul understood there's a turning around here where one disobedience was turned around by one's obedience. And we see that Jesus won the battle. This is my third point, so I'm cracking on with them. John, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. I love that word. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he said, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds out the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on a pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up, so you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said, All these I will give you, because the devil thinks he has the authority, doesn't he? All of this is mine, and I'll give it to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and the angels came and waited on him. And from that time, really important here, from that time, he began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near, or the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see how he wins the battle, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Jesus overcomes those temptations and wins the victory. And some scholars think there was more of a victory won that day over the enemy than that made way for the cross. And you look at every encounter Jesus has with the forces of darkness. After that encounter, they do not have a chance against him. They do not have a chance, but of course we know that the cross was the final nail, wasn't it, that put, um, put the enemy in his place. The power of the Spirit. Luke, interestingly, records the same story, and he says this in Luke 14, verse 4. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee and reports about him spread throughout the surrounding country. You know, the, the power of the Spirit is the key for us to resist the temptations. And maybe we ought to know, is it the devil that's tempting me? You know, we can be quick to blame the devil. You know, devil's on my case. He's, you know, he did this, he did that. It's all his fault. It's not my fault. You know, it sounds very similar to what Adam and Eve said. Eve said, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. Adam's like, it wasn't me. It's that, that woman that you gave me. It's your fault, Lord. I don't know if, this is the question, I don't know if finding the reason why or looking to share blame does any help whatsoever. And I think it's about taking up responsibility and taking up the Word of God. You know, we need to be armed with the Word of God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out the mouth of God. What are we feeding on? You know, what we are feeding on is often the point of our temptation. And it's the point of our weakness. And maybe it is the devil in some ways because he knows the point of our weakness. 
But actually, maybe we're just weak in our flesh. And the devil doesn't need to do anything. And maybe it's just us. And then the devil goes, I want to accuse you. See, you're just human. See, you have no authority here. You have no place here. Who are you to tell me, you know, when you can't even get your own life together? How, are you, how dare you lay hands on the sick and see them recover? Look at your own life. You know, that sounds like the enemy. Because the enemy wants to accuse. The enemy wants to deceive but sometimes maybe it's our own flesh that's giving opportunity for that accusation to come. Could that be true? What we need is the power of the Spirit. This is going to have to be a three-parter, I'm sure. But to rule over the enemy's temptation and to rule over our flesh, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to be dependent on him. We have to know that we have authority over the enemy because of who we are in Christ. And we need to know that we have authority over ourselves because we've died to self. We're dead to self and we're alive to God. And the only power then the enemy has is to accuse us. It says he comes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Peter says, submit to God. Resist the enemy. And he will flee. And I think in our submission to God, we're saying, listen, I can't do this by myself. And I need your Holy Spirit to help me. And it's that opposite of that pride, isn't it? Maybe in our, in our pride, we think, you know, we can do this. We can make this. We can try and do go down the road of self-discipline. I'm not saying we shouldn't be self-disciplined. But I'm saying it has limited, has limited power. When we say, God, I need you. I need your help. And we need to understand that the fullness of God dwells in Christ. This is Colossians. And Christ dwells in you. And you're complete in him. Or you're perfect in him. That word, the perfect, is the word complete. You're complete and one in Christ. And we know Christ has won the authority. But maybe we need to, we need to be clear. Is this struggle, challenge I'm happening that I'm going through, is this my own flesh? I'd say most of the time, I think the devil's too busy doing something else to worry about us as an individual. Maybe. I'm not, I'm not looking for the devil under every rock. I'm not looking to give him any credit or anything. But maybe this is my flesh. Maybe this is a weakness that I have. Maybe it's my own struggle. And if there is some other power at work, the scripture says the power is at work of those who are disobedient. So am I disobedient? Am I going against what God has called me to do? We can't always blame the devil. Sometimes we need to take responsibility, get our own house in order. We need to understand that Jesus has authority over the enemy, that he has done this. Colossians 2.16 says he disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle over them on the cross. He triumphed over them on the cross. The Savior, by his death, he took that dominion. He took, what, he took back what was lost and he took captivity captive. And Satan and all his legions that had invaded the earth and drawn humankind into captivity subjected them to their own evil reign. But Christ, 
by his death, subdued these invaders, recaptured those who'd been vanquished. Colossians 2 then speaks of Jesus being nailed to the cross along with the written charges against us, the record of our wrongdoings. The things that we would be accused of is nailed to the cross. But you know what happened? We were nailed to that cross with him. They no longer have that authority over us. They have been disarmed. We need to understand that even if it is the enemy that's against me, we need to know that he is disarmed. We need to know that Christ is the victory. We need to know the enemy has no power to accuse us because we're no longer in his camp. We're no longer in his kingdom. We're no longer subject to his rule. We're subject to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Two more minutes, then I'll close. Ephesians 3 talks about the principalities and the powers that are in the heavenly realm. And I think there's two aspects to our victory. One is we are in Christ, seated together with him in heavenly places, and the enemy is under our feet. We have to know that. We have to believe that. And he says in um, Ephesians 3, he says, His intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point being, God is using the church to further the victory that Jesus has already won. And the next verse, it says, Also in Christ you were circumcised. Circumcision not done by hands, it was through Christ's circumcision, that is his death, that you were made free from the power of your sinful self. So it doesn't, well, it does matter. <laughs> but it doesn't matter if it's the enemy or it's your sinful self. Because the cross has the answer to both. He didn't leave us dead in our sin and trespasses. He made us alive with him. And he has given us the authority over our sinful self. And he has commissioned us as a church or as those who are called out to make this wisdom of God manifest to all the powers and the principalities. And we know our old self is crucified with Christ. We know the cutting off of our old flesh, that circumcision, that we are in him. We are in him. I'm going to close there and I'll pick this up again another time. Doesn't matter if it's the enemy or it's our own flesh or the weakness of our own flesh. We submit to God. We submit to God. And we say, God, I need your Holy Spirit to help me. And we stand in faith, believing that our old life is gone, that there's a new beginning, there's a new creation. What was once our old life in chaos, God has brought into order. And we need to stand in that, acknowledging what Christ has done for us by believing in Christ and repenting of our old life, we come into a, a genesis, a new beginning. And, and some of you know what I'm talking about. 
a new beginning because you were once in darkness, cut off from God, without hope, without Christ in the world. You were once like that, and you know it. And now you stand free. Now you stand forgiven. Now you stand in the power of the Holy Spirit that's helping you. Now, will there be temptations? Of course. Will there be challenges? Yes. But God is with you. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Go into all the world. I give you authority. I give you the authority. Now preach the gospel. Be that witness for me. Preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Be those agents with that authority and that divine commission to bring heaven to earth. Now some of us, we don't know that. Maybe you're in here and you don't know the freedom of knowing Christ. You don't know what it means to be uh, alive in Christ because you're just being beaten up by your temptations. You've just been beaten up by your old sinful self. And you need the Holy Spirit to help you. Let's just take a moment to pray. Maybe if you're watching at home or you're sitting here, let's just pray for a moment. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us because he can and he does. But we need to take responsibility. And we need to repent. That doesn't mean do penance. That means change of heart and mind. And repentance says, I'm sorry for the life that I've lived without you. I choose to turn around and follow you. Forgive my sin. Enter into my life. Bring your Holy Spirit to help me, to guide me. And I choose to believe. Remember, that's one thing, repent and believe. God wants to make a turnaround in your life today. He wants to bring you into a new creation. If you've never prayed that prayer before and you want to make a commitment to Christ, I challenge you now, do it now. Don't leave this place without repenting and believing. Don't leave this place without knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, without you acknowledging that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, without putting Him on the throne of your life without asking for His Holy Spirit to fill you and flood you completely. I'm not just trying to stir up your emotions here. I'm trying to just be passionate. Just be passionate. Cast out my sin, Lord, and enter in that I may be this new creation that may acknowledge you in all of my ways, that I may trust you that I may tell everyone about your goodness and that your kingdom come, that your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Forgive us our trespasses, our, forgive, our sins as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.